0: This is episode four of Bright Spark, a podcast from Innovate UK in partnership with Ofgem, all about the opportunities that are available to energy networks and their partners under the Strategic Innovation Fund, or SIF. I'm Matt Hastings, and this time we are focusing on two of the SIF's four current challenge areas. And spoiler alert, we will home in on the other two next time in episode five. Coming up, we visit Imperial College London to discuss preparing for a net zero power system
1: with globally renowned Professor Tim Green. We are looking at trying to fully decarbonize our electricity system by 2035. In engineering terms, that's tomorrow. We need to start making deep and radical changes straight away. And later, we
0: are with Ed Rees of Citizens Advice, who shares thoughts on why it's vital we support a just energy transition.
2: We're not in a very good position currently. There'll be 8.2 million consumers in fuel poverty from October. And that's even with £400 of bill reduction introduced by the government.
0: As you know by now, I'm joined in these episodes by one of my Innovate UK colleagues, And for this episode, we have the brilliant Manu Ravishanka. Hi Matt, how are you? We're in good form, thanks. You okay? Yeah, all good, all good. Looking forward to this. Excellent, me too. So Manu, you've been responsible for a huge amount of heavy lifting around the challenges, the first stage in our four stage giant leap together operating model. And in the context of the fund and our challenge areas, can you just
3: introduce yourself a little bit and the work that you've been doing? Yeah, no, very happy to. So my name is Manu Ravi Shankar. Uh, I'm an innovation lead. And my background is all about thinking whole systems, uh, how we can use the power of systems thinking to address some of the most pressing challenges you know between climate change and the energy sector you know helping companies think beyond their own particular part of the energy system so that we can connect the dots and really move the needle on on climate change and the net zero transition it's really cool stuff so for those who aren't familiar with the
0: program and what we mean by challenges, would you be able just to give a bit of an overview of why we've landed on this challenge-led innovation approach and why we have
3: this kind of four-each-year evolving challenge model? I guess really taking a step back, you know, we have a giant mountain to climb at, in your own words, uh, to, to meet the net zero challenge, and we have a limited time to do it. Uh, You know, we're legally bound to to be a net zero society really by 2050. And so for us to do innovation, which is really important, we need to be really focused whilst we explore many different solutions to the problems out there. We all need as a sector and as a society, a shared understanding of what we're doing and where we're trying to get to. And this challenge led approach is, is essentially an instrument to bring that shared understanding to the fore so that people not only the energy sector, but outside the energy sector who have a lot to contribute to some of the problems that we're trying to solve, have that shared understanding and can really come together to focus on one of the challenges that we put out every year, uh, which then allows us to, to really support large and impactful projects that develops the really cool products and innovations and consumer benefits, that then allows us to meet the net zero transition in an effective and economically prosperous way.
0: That to me is the benefit of challenge-led innovation, is that, that focus on that specific critical issue. And look, you are very much in the driving seat for this
3: episode. Tell us what we got in store. Sure. So we're taking time uh, this episode and our next one, episode five, to go really in depth into each of the four current challenge areas to talk about what we're keen to focus on, what we're looking for from successful SIF applicants, and also their really innovative partners who have come together to meet these challenges. So to recap,
0: the four challenges are supporting a just energy transition, improving energy system resilience and robustness, accelerating decarbonisation of major demands, and preparing for a net zero power system. These challenges aren't just something that we've made up by ourselves in a little SIF-shaped bubble. We've done a huge amount of engagement with the sector. You've done a huge amount of engagement with the sector. Do you wanna tell us a little bit about what led us up to the point of being able to select these four
3: challenges from the huge amount of different ideas that we had coming in? Absolutely, Matt. As you said, we did a lot of engagement. As you know, this is quite a busy space and quite a dynamic space. There's a lot of work that happens every day. There are different programs and so on. And therefore, for SIF to be additional and and really focus on impactful areas, we need to take stock of what work has been done and what some of the gaps are which could really warrant us to focus on. So by talking to the different stakeholders, which is around 140 engagements actually that we did, we were able to take stock of all the great work that's already been done and then really uh, try to prioritize down to some of the areas that are sometimes a natural progression, but sometimes there are gaps that have been left behind in some of the, the older programs. And the second area is the energy system is not purely technical, but there's a lot of dimensions of activities happening. There are solutions developers, there are people looking at consumer business models, there are local authorities trying to, you know, deliver their uh, climate change plans and so on. So, you know, we really need to listen to this diversity of voices to understand, you know, what some of the areas of challenges different people facing are and some of the great ideas that they might have. So by doing these two things and really speaking to a wide range of, of, of stakeholders, we were really able to generate a lot of ideas and then really down selected it to to four four challenges, which we then had another discussion with Off Jam before we, we finalized those areas.
0: I think the key point here is around where we target our investment as a fund and make sure that we're not duplicating areas that the broader innovation ecosystem is covering. When it comes to net zero, when it comes to power energy networks, energy systems, we've probably got around 5 billion pounds of investment across UK government, UKRI and Ofgem, and being really well coordinated and joined up between other funders to ensure that we're targeting that investment in the right areas. And exactly like you say, listening more than talking so that we're deploying our investment in the right areas is an absolutely key value of the fund and something that I
3: have to say, I think you've done fantastically well. It is one of the most exciting aspects of my job. Just listening to the diversity of work that's going on. It's just fascinating, as you say, just going to listening mode and just taking in all of this great work and and all the great experience that's around us that we can leverage to, to, to make ourselves more impactful. So yeah, absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you. Now each one of these challenges
0: is absolutely enormous in its own right. So we're gonna take some time to digest each one in detail and we're gonna go through them one by one to this episode
3: and to the next time. So what I have been doing is having discussions with some of the leading thinkers across each of the challenges. Later in this episode, we'll focus on supporting a just energy transition, but first, we are looking at preparing for a net zero power system. Today, I've made my way from Southeast London to Imperial College in central London to come and meet uh, Professor Tim Green, who is a world expert in future power systems, to talk to him about preparing for a net zero power systems challenge that the Strategic Innovation Fund has launched and that we'll be focusing on
1: for 2023. Hello, my name's Tim Green, I'm a Professor of Electrical Power Engineering at Imperial College London. I've got quite a wide interest in energy systems in general, how do we decarbonize uh, across both electricity and heating and industrial use of energy and transport use of energy. But I also have a particular specialisation within that, which is the type of power processing known as power electronics, so using very large scale semiconductors to process electrical power as opposed to or in contrast to rotating electrical machines. And that's really a key technology in the future grid because all of our major new resources, wind, solar, batteries and so forth, are electronically interfaced. So Tim, I'd really like to start from the start. What does it mean for you to be preparing for a net zero power system? The main thing is to obviously to decarbonize the sources of our energy. So it is the shift that's already well underway out of coal, which has largely happened, out of gas, and into, for the UK, wind principally. So solar's going to be important, but wind and offshore wind in particular we see is very cost competitive in Northwest Europe where it's windy. So that's the big change happening. There, nuclear will continue to play a role. At the other end of that system or equation, we're thinking about what's changing in the way people use energy. Mm-hmm. So most of the things we use electricity for in, in the home will stay broadly as they are, we're not really seeing a radical change there, but in heating and in transport is where the changes are happening, obviously. So it's charging electric vehicles at our home, at the workplace, at the shopping centre, and running heat pumps rather than natural gas boilers. So those are the two ends of the system, but what's changing in the middle matters hugely. We will still use big centralized electricity generation because our wind farms are big. And we're going to need a network to transmit that power from from where it arrives to where it's used in the towns and cities. But that means we're we're changing that network because instead of it being big coal-fired power stations in South Wales and and the Midlands and so forth, it's wind farms around the coast. So off the coast of Pembrokeshire will come shortly and off the east coast of England and, and Scotland So new infrastructure to do that, new infrastructure in the towns to make sure that we can feed all of those electric vehicles, but also some big changes in the operation of the electricity grid. Our electricity grids grew up around generators, which are magnets rotating in coils, what we call synchronous generators. And all the features of those generators really dictated the way in which we built our electricity system, the way we make sure that two generators locking together, run together and both produce 50 hertz. The way we deal with a fault when a, when a tree hits a line and there's a short circuit and fault current flows, how do we manage that and get back to a secure and reliable system again? How do we control the voltage? So all of that built up around the traditional generators. And now when we decommission those and we run from wind turbines, um, which have an electronic interface to the grid rather than a, a spinning electromagnet interface to the grid, then we have to think again about how we keep the system secure, how we make sure it's stable, how do we control the voltage, how do we control the frequency, how do we manage faults. So there's a lot of work in there. That is done partly in planning and it's done partly in real-time operations from a control centre for the grid, and those control centres are going to change because the system is, is much faster in the way it responds to events out right on the network. So the sort of decision support tools, the sort of data processing that goes on in those control centers will need to change as well. So is it
3: fair to say that the transition to a net zero power system is very multidimensional? So it's not just build more infrastructure. We need to think about security, resilience, how people interact with the energy system. So there's, there's a lot of aspects to think about, not just if we keep building out, we'll kind of reach that goal.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's, it's not just about building kits and, and in, installing it. Um, all of the, you know, great many disciplines involved there. You, you were mentioning the data science around processing much more data from much more intelligent pieces of equipment on the network and getting useful information out of the data the control system arrangements, sort of like the autopilot of, of the grid, the electrical engineering of, of, of how that grid is put together, uh, the civil engineering of building all of that infrastructure, but, but the, also the, the market design and the economics of that, and the human behavioural aspects, if we really are going to, to put different propositions to customers, making sure that that is an interesting proposition for the customer that they want to engage with that solves problems they experience not an interesting proposition for the grids to solve the grids problems because that's not going to fly off the shelf. So
3: what I take away then is this is an area that's ripe for innovation. And taking a step back, the Strategic Innovation Fund's objective is to really move the needle for the net zero transition in terms of the gas and the electricity networks and system operation and ultimately deliver net benefits to consumers and create a lot of exciting innovations, products and services and new companies. Uh, do you think then the time is right for the SIF to focus on preparing for a net-zero power system as a key challenge area?
1: Oh, the time is absolutely right. The timing of the challenge is is awesome. Actually, we are looking at trying to fully decarbonize our electricity system by 2035. You know, it's 12 or so years away. In engineering terms, that's tomorrow. We need to start making deep and radical changes straight away. We can't wait for a a long cycle of research and development, and testing and deployment, we, we have to have agile and quick runs around that loop. So we quite quickly try things on the grid, learn from that, maybe ask some new research questions and explore them and then go through another cycle of innovation. We, we have to innovate quickly. And I think, I mean, in fairness, quite a lot of that is going on, but the scale of the challenge in front of us is enormous and further mechanisms to help that process are definitely needed in getting to this point, we've already knocked down hurdles. There was a time when people said, well, it's going to be really difficult to run with more than 20% wind on an yes. electricity system. You know, We're well past that. We will run times of 50% wind on the, on the system, and that's achieved. I think it is the case that it's increasingly getting difficult. Getting that last bit of gas out and getting the fraction of wind up becomes more and more challenging the closer you get to 100% renewables, but it's a challenge we have to face. I think we've also seen a real culture change in the amount of openness and information that's, that's produced by the industry, the amount of documentation that National Grid puts forward, it, its future energy scenarios, its system operability framework, it, network options assessments, all of these documents that get published that, that help the industry see how the system operator thinks the system is evolving. And it's not just the system operator's thinking, it's, you know, there are consultations going on in much of that. And then the response by the industry, the engagement with that. I think without that, you know, we would not be able to have confidence we were heading in the right direction. Changing culture to to a very much being open about what the challenges are, engaging as many you know clever people as we can find in that thinking is, is a real achievement. And I think the rest of the world look to the UK and see good examples of, of innovation happening to, to rise to those challenges. I think that's a really
3: fascinating point that it's not only technology development, but there is a point around transparency and knowledge dissemination that allows us to kind of embrace this challenge and work together at the pace that is required. Yeah, which I've never thought about it that way. So it's, it's a really kind of fascinating point that, as you said, the future energy scenarios are all contributing towards that shared understanding of what we need to do and where we need to go to and enables us to kind of work towards in a coordinated manner.
1: Yeah, because lots of people have to respond to that, don't they? So, so there are the People like you know, Siemens and Itachi and, and Schneider and, and I'll leave someone else for not GE like, who make the big electrical equipment and, and, and the electrical bits of the wind farms. They need to see which way the industry thinks the whole system is going to know what features to build in. The grid operators need to understand what features are, might be available from what the manufacturers can produce. The developers, the people who build the wind farms with the kit that's supplied by the vendors need to think about what beyond selling energy, is going to give them a value stream. What services can they provide into the system to help it manage the frequency, for instance? That has to be a a shared understanding, I think, across the different types of actors that are in the system.
3: So now that we've covered a little bit about what we've done well and, and, and some of the enabling architectures we put in place to kind of work together as a community to kind of achieve that transition, Perhaps it'll be good to get your reflections on what some of the difficult areas are. And as you were saying, it gets harder as we get closer to that target, and there are different things we need to focus on. Could you tell us a little bit about what are the kind of big stumbling blocks for us to kind of get past in the next kind of 12 to 15 years for that net zero transition? Okay.
1: There are lots of them, and I'll forget a few, I'm <laughs> sure. First of all, I'm going to go back to that word power system or, or, or grid system. It works when it all works together. That, is a huge challenge. It, um, the very occasional times we, we have a power cut, you know, it, it, it'll be a widespread event involving lots of people. It's not a localized, when it goes wrong, it's not a localized event. So we have to keep the whole system running or there are serious consequences. That means every part has to work. Well, you know, we build redundancy and so it's not strictly every part. So when we make changes, there are difficulties, perhaps around unintended consequences. We begin to see emergent behaviours in the system, which are maybe running ahead of our analysis of of the dynamics of the system. So there's a lot of clever maths going on, trying to analyse what happens when the system perturbs, and do we know that if you have a sudden loss of a single generator or a sudden big load switch on, that the system will uh, wobble a little bit, but but come back to where it was and be stable. So we're beginning to see emergent behaviours of wind farms doing things that we didn't quite realize that they would do when they were put in the rest of the system and interact with everybody else. So that, I think, is one of the big challenges. How do we model and understand the dynamics of a system which has gone from having you know 100 or 200 power stations to thousands of wind turbines and millions of solar panels and, and thousands of batteries? The scale of the system has got much bigger, than, you know, the curse dimensionality, but another really Fascinating challenge is we've gone from apparatus in the system which is really governed by laws of motion. It's a spinning mass that accelerates and decelerates according to equations that you know are well understood. We've gone from that to a system that whose behaviours are defined by software. Mm. So, so first it can be more complicated. Second, it can be much much faster reactions, which is challenging for what happens in the control room. And third. That software is proprietary. It is the intellectual property of the people who are developing that equipment, and we have to respect that. They've developed it, they need to make a return on it. How do we now build a system model and be able to assure ourselves that the whole thing is going to hold together under all the operating conditions? very sunny uh, day, a very cold, dark winter day, an event that happens when a nuclear power station unexpectedly shuts down or something. We have to reassure ourselves around all of that. And, uh, that is challenging, I think, because it probably means a shift for us away from a physics-led model to a data-led model. So rather than writing all the equations and then finding the right numbers to plug into, we're going to find all the measurement data from our system and try to build a model from that.
3: So do we need kind of new actors and new disciplinaries to come together to start addressing the problems? Uh, can you can you let us know about some of those kind of key stakeholder groups that need to work together?
1: Yes, certainly, the, the increasing digitalization of the network and the reliance much more on, on software-defined systems to control it and to monitor it and, and ensure its health. We need software architects to understand how we're going to plug different bits of models contributed by different people. We need a bit of a shift towards open software development rather than single-vendor software systems. That's a big change we potentially could stream a great deal of data off our power system it's maybe not as big and as complicated as you know, the data you've got streaming videos across the world but it's still sizable amounts of data mm. and data's no use, what you want is the information that's buried in the data so, so the data science of understanding what are those signals trying to tell us about the stability and the dynamics of the system on the one hand or what are they trying to tell us about the asset health is this particular piece of equipment aging prematurely and needs to be Taken out, cybersecurity. Obviously, we're talking about a critical national infrastructure. So cybersecurity, and there's also a huge amount of commercial and market data now between uh, many more sources of power, but also more active consumer engagement. So uh, the digitalization is there in several aspects.
3: You have been examining and researching this sector for a few years now. Uh, you know, and one of the kind of top experts in the world. If you were developing a project into the Strategic Innovation Fund at this time, what would be the area that you'd pick up and and really focus on?
1: You know, I come to this from a particular background. I I, I started work in, in the area of power electronics. So this is big semiconductors as a way of processing power rather than electromagnetic means. It's been a long journey to the point where it feels like we are at the sharp end of this debate now, but it feels like we are. And for me, it's, it's how, do we, how do we do root cause analysis of problems that emerge in, in the power system? So when we see um, an oscillation develop in the system that takes a long time to damp out, that's telling us that the next time it happens, it might not damp out, it might oscillate uncontrollably, and, and then we have a, an event leading to a power cut. How do we, for me, how do we combine models built on physics of the bits of the system for which we can write the equations and models built on data for the bits where we're uncertain about what the characteristics are. So there's a set of mathematical techniques we need to develop to, to blend physics and data models and a set of mathematical techniques around how we identify root causes of problems. And this is all aimed at putting tools, software tools, into a control room. So a system operator who's observing the system and sees an emergent problem can look to this tool and say, well, I need to diagnose what's going on now and get on top of it before that leads to a a runaway situation that can't be controlled. And those are tools which are really in their very early stages at the moment, because we're only now reaching the point where our systems are beginning to be dominated by the power electronic interfaces rather than the traditional interfaces.
3: Thank you. So this feels like as the system is becoming a lot more complex we really need those fundamental tools for us to understand how the system behaves in different situations so that we can monitor, predict, and kind of manage these systems in real time yes. and deliver the security that we're all used to when we flick a switch, the light comes on. We still need that to happen, even though we might be running a completely different power system in about ten years' time
1: yes, because uh, as a as a householder you shouldn't be expected to worry about the fact that the grid system out there is is changing that that's the business of those that's in this industry to make sure that as we decarbonize and we make the system smart consumers get at least as good a service
3: it's so great to have professor tim green as part of the podcast it is always such a great experience to get a glimpse inside all the great research that's going on within imperial college it's it is hugely impressive for the second half of this episode, we'll be looking at the second of our four challenge area, which is supporting a just energy transition. And I've been speaking with Ed Reese from the Energy Networks and Services team at Citizens Advice.
2: I focus on the energy networks and systems as part of the wider consumer advocacy team at Citizens Advice.
3: Hi, Ed. I'm really excited to talk to you about a just energy transition. It is certainly a concept that you know, I find that is being used a lot more when we talk about climate change and energy systems. But you know, as someone who's in the heart of these discussions representing people's needs, what does supporting a just energy transition mean to you? There are two two key parts. One is fairness in
2: providing a reliable quality of service. But fairness is also uh, fairness to different consumers with different needs and requirements and different abilities to pay. So we're not in a very good position currently. I have to to mention the current energy crisis, given my Royal Assistant's advice. National Energy Action are saying there'll be 8.2 million consumers in fuel poverty from October. And that's even with 400 uh, pounds of bill reduction introduced by the government. So the system at the moment could really do better in terms of fairness and justice. And there's a couple of key causes to this current position that we're in. One of the key key drivers is dependence on externally sourced high-carbon fossil fuels. And this, this trend and dependence um, leads to extra cost and will continue do, to do so in the long term. Uh, and the longer answer as to why we have this uh, dependence uh, and unjustness or unfairness in the system is that that's kind of how the system was designed and it's very susceptible to volatility. And there's a couple of key reasons as to why uh, we have that um, volatility. One is, is gas to the property, uh, which limits the diversity of energy supply. So we always have to have gas to keep people turning on their ovens and heating their homes. Another, another key challenge is low levels of electric heat. Uh, we have the lowest in Europe uh, and lowest rates of installation. So we're really behind when it comes to transitioning away from, from fossil fuels. Uh, another key factor is low levels of housing insulation. We're particularly poor in the UK at that. And also our networks are unprepared for the climate challenge. We've seen a couple of storms in the last year. Storm Arwen and Storm Eustace both cause massive disruption to power supply, leaving millions of people off the grid. So there are some very simple solutions to to address the preparedness to the, the sort of energy system we need in the future.
3: As you say, it is an important area, but you know, what you've explained really highlights that where we are starting from is quite a low baseline. So we have a lot to do. So it almost feels like a twin challenge where the energy system itself needs to transition in line with net zero requirements. And we need to kind of embed the just transition within it as it evolves You know, into, into whatever a set of technologies and markets and business models that is going to help us achieve net zero. So, kind of moving the conversation on, the Strategic Innovation Fund develops challenges where we feel like innovation and collaborative action can really help us move the needle on some of these areas, and of course, deliver the important consumer benefits. So in this context, and, and taking into account all of the barriers that you mentioned, do you feel like the timing is right for the SIF to focus on supporting a just energy transition? I think it is.
2: I think. The real challenge is that it's such a worthy area. That's also part partly the problem because, you know, everybody accepts that this is something that should be worked on in the industry. And when we've asked consumers themselves, uh, we've done some polling which shows that a lot of people are actually really supportive of providing additional support to vulnerable customers. We've done some research with Public First and with Delta EE looking at this and seeing there's really good level of support from, from consumers. The trouble is that the the legacy approach to addressing the challenge has been very piecemeal. So a lot of networks have been funded over a long period of time to innovate in this area. Uh, There's also lots of work by suppliers, local authorities and charities, all doing lots of piecemeal activity to try and address the challenge. And what I'm really excited about with the SIF is there's a chance to look at this uh, strategically from the big picture, to really look at how we can move the dial significantly on this challenge. I think we've fallen into a bit of incrementalism with the approach to tackling this challenge. And the SIF provides an opportunity to really go to the heart uh, of the challenge and think about, you know, rather than you know what's going to do well for a few customers, what is actually going to be a system that's going to work for the
3: whole of the country and deliver over time. That actually gets me quite excited in a way. It's overcoming kind of incrementalism, joining the dots and taking a systems approach is, is essentially what CIF is all about. So I feel like it, it is actually quite a good time for the just energy transition topic to kind of undertake innovations that can kind of help move the needle along using CIF's support. And the second bit that you said, which is probably the kind of collaboration, there's a lot of stakeholders involved in this that need to come together to kind of make it work for consumers. And again, that's, that's almost a critical part of CIF's DNA is, is how do we really align efforts across not only the energy sector actually looking beyond because these are kind of artificial divides that we make when we talk about energy sector for for consumer you know we people don't really draw lines across the economy that way so i, I can see really why it's important to to kind of join the um, join the efforts across the sector so maybe just one question now that you you know you mentioned a couple of issues in terms of you know the networks need to understand you know who really need the support and, and you know, how can they best provide it with, with, with all the services that currently exist and that are going to evolve? What would you think are the kind of big stumbling blocks, particularly in energy network context, that we need to be aware of and address to make meaningful progress in those two areas?
2: So there's a couple of areas where you know, we're going to look at some projects to, to, to address some of these challenges. Uh, and one is the Priority Service Register which is the, the way that the networks sign up uh, consumers who need additional support. The task is split between suppliers and networks, and it's a very piecemeal approach at the moment. If you were to, to want to sign up to the PSR to, to, to say to a network that you need some additional support, you, you'd need to go onto the, the, the network's website and find the right page and answer a set of questions. Each of the networks have a different sort of page uh, for sign up with a different set of questions. And over time, the networks have shown that they sign up uh, a relatively small number of customers a week because it's quite um, not that well-known and the process of sign-up is quite slow. But there's ways in which you can revolutionise how that's done. You can use things like AI to think about uh, spotting consumers who are vulnerable ahead of time. You can also get consumers to have an easy access point for signing up and to allow signing up of people like friends or family, people who might not necessarily know they need support, but you think you can actually help them. So there are lots of ways in which data can be used more smartly to, to better understand uh, the needs of customers.
3: I think that's, again, really kind of exciting area that is feels like ripe for innovation, kind of, you know, how do we leverage data and digitalization developments for the benefit of consumers and, and the kind of the net zero transition so i'm just want to pick up on that point you know as you say the priority services register but you know other utilities working with you know customer support data and digitalization who do you think are the kind of key stakeholders that need to come together to deliver this effectively it feels like not just an energy sector or an energy network issue to target it almost feels broader than that is that fair
2: yeah absolutely i think one of the the key challenges that's going to come forward in in this space is also the difference between consumers who can flex their energy usage and consumers that can't. And so the level of support and engagement needs to, needs to change. Sure. So you've got alongside uh, networks and suppliers, you, there's also people like behavior change specialists, consumer experts, researchers, all of these sorts of people need to come together to, to try and address some of these key challenges. I think that's
3: a great call to action to think about the solutions that you're developing and the projects that you're involved in and how you can shape proposals coming into SIF. And actually on that point, I want to close the discussion, Ed, with asking you, putting you on the spot a little bit actually, if you were developing a project idea into SIF on this challenge area, what would it be? Where would you focus on?
2: Well, I'm going to be cheeky. I've got two, two kind of ideas and one I've already touched on a little bit. We've talked a little bit about the, the PSR process of having the sign ups on the different websites. And there's also the the option of things like AI to automate the the engagement so consumers don't need to give their consent to to receive those additional services but then there's also ways in which you could have sort of a one-stop shop sign-up process across all the networks and maybe not even just energy networks but thinking right across the water sector and telecom sector all those essential utilities and avoid a customer having to sign up to each of those different portals to, to get support and if they can just fill in those details once that would be brilliant. And giving consumers control over what data they share so they feel in control of, of what happens to them. Because privacy is really important to consumers. And when they feel like decisions are made on their behalf, sometimes they might feel they might not be in their own interests. So they want to always have that control element to, to rescind permission. Uh, and if you can give consumers that, I think they'll they'll trust the process and be keen to, to, to get additional support in the system. OK, so that's that's point one. The, the second second uh, point, I think, is energy efficiency is, is key in, in this sector. It really is a the big leveller between consumers. If you can get energy efficiency into homes, it reduces the chance of bill volatility, which means that people are, are going to feel much more secure about being able to pay their bills however the level of energy efficiency installs is is very low partly because it's it's not that attractive to consumers uh, and they don't always understand the level of returns they'll get or have confidence they'll get returns so what what would make a real difference is if there's bank, what I call bankable energy efficiency installs, a bankable level of return that consumers will get for installing something. So, And the more bankable you can make energy efficiency installs, the more likely consumers are to, to see them as good investments with low risk, which are going to be worth their while. Uh, and I don't think consumers are there yet. So I think there's huge, huge opportunity to use data uh, and to use guarantees to consumers to really encourage energy efficiency installs.
3: Thanks, Ed. It's always great when you ask someone, can you state one innovation idea and they come up with two. It's absolutely great. So that's two of our four SIF challenge areas covered off. Supporting a just energy transition earlier in this episode, preparing for a net zero power system. So let's bring Matt Hastings back in for a couple of final thoughts.
0: Thanks very much, Manu. What a cracking episode. Thank you so much to all of our speakers. Really brilliant, dynamic, insightful piece of
3: work. So there's so much potential in these two challenge areas alone. In your most positive, upbeat moments, which is 24 hours a day, what positive changes do you believe can be delivered by these two SIF challenges?
0: Yeah, I think I am optimistic and optimistic for the right reasons, right? We're deploying a huge amount of capital against these challenge areas. And I think having a really robust process enables us to deliver significant outcomes and the kinds of outcomes that I personally would like to see. If we take just energy transition first, there's always been this quite challenging connection between the networks and customers, you know, given the fact that energy suppliers hold a lot of that relationship with the customer and you don't really know as a domestic customer or a business customer who your network is, unless, you know, you have a power cut or you can smell gas or as a business, you want to expand, I would really love to see consumers directly benefiting from the net zero transition. And I suppose what we mean by that is benefiting, not just in terms of lower costs, but also benefiting in terms of new products and services that can make their lives easier. And we're experiencing a much more complex energy system as the rollout of all of these additional assets happens, whether it's storage, whether it's EVs, whether it's heat pumps, whatever. And really, the energy system is already complex for consumers. It's very hard as a consumer to have what we call system services, services which are consolidated to make our lives easier. And I think the Just Energy Transition has the ability to not only reduce costs, but also make people's lives easier. You know, wouldn't it be great if consumers were excited and engaged in their energy, rather than just feeling as if they were recipients of it and they were disempowered to do anything about it. So I think there's a great opportunity to really empower consumers and network users through the Just Transition Challenge. And then in terms of the net zero power system, We live in this very challenging technical environment where 2035 sounds like a long way off, you know, what, 13 years. But in reality, the kind of technologies and the kind of processes and systems that we need to see to support those technologies, they really need to be in place, being trialed and tested by the end of this decade, which gives us eight years. And if we want to get them in place, tried and tested within eight years, then they need to be developed now. And that's what's so exciting about this challenge around the power system is that the SIF should be able to really move the needle to bring together broad energy system partners, not just the networks, but academics, investors, startups, SMEs, to really try and get under the skin of what these technologies, systems and processes are, and start to put them in place at the speed and scale that is required. And the scale is one thing that I find slightly terrifying. You know, we're talking about things like 50 gigawatts of offshore wind, when it's been an enormous. Struggle to get ten gigawatts of offshore wind connected. You know, it's an exponentially increased volume of activity that we need to hit here, and we're not going to hit that without the Strategic Innovation Fund and without the kind of activities consortia, and quite frankly, sheer grit and determination and courage that the networks and their partners have to get this delivered in
3: time. Absolutely, Matt. I think hundred percent, and I think I'd like to echo what Tim Green was saying, which is this is the perfect time for SIF to to kind of enable all of these innovation across these areas. It feels like we're in this perfect storm moment when you know all of these challenges, but also some of the tailwinds about innovations, digitalization and data kind of at the right time for us to almost unleash SIF onto the sector and, and kind of see the exciting places it could take us. I agree.
0: And just to take a little bit of a step back here, let's not forget that the challenges are just one part of our four-stage giant leap together process where we move from challenges into ideation into incubation and acceleration, but really without the challenges and being able to define these issues up front, we're never going to be able to solve some of these mission critical challenges at the speed that we need to solve them. I'm really excited to move into ideation, something that the team are already working on now, which is where we start to think and talk to some of the great businesses and academics who will be able to take their best and brightest minds and apply them to some of these challenges. And then as we move into incubation, really starting to see these consortiums shortier form, working with the networks and project ideas start to develop even further, prior to us opening up the challenges during our acceleration phase and launching the Energy Innovation Summit with the ENA, Offgem, Bayes and
3: ourselves. Right, so we've covered off supporting a just energy transition and preparing for a net-zero power system. I will be back with you in Episode 5 to look at improving energy system resilience and robustness and accelerating decarbonisation of major demands. Thanks so
0: much, Manu. Looking forward to it. Promises to be another great episode of Brightspark.